How the hell are they charging that? Welcome to the Aesthetics Mastery Show. I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Hi, I'm Ryder Pierce. And today we are going to have our first viral show. Unfortunately, it's the coronavirus we're going to talk about. And we're also going to talk about hepatitis B, C, and HIV and how it could be spread with certain bad practices. What else are we going to talk about? So we're also going to tackle the thorny question of how the hell are they charging that? I see this on Facebook groups all the time. You guys asking, seriously? 40 pound for one mil of, of filler. And so, yeah, we're going to go there and ask and actually answer the question. How are they managing? They being competitors, maybe non-meds, etc. How are they managing to charge so little? Yes. Good. Interesting topics that come up all the time on social media. So, And what can our response be as well as, yeah. as, as practitioners? So let's dig in. What's first? Okay. So let's go there first, I think. So it really is such a pain point. I see you guys all the time saying someone's opened up next to me and they're charging two pence for five mils and I don't know how I'm supposed to compete. And then what gets loaded in as well is that you guys say, I've spent so much on courses. I've put all my energies into it. I'm, you don't say this, but I can sense that you're really falling in love with this industry and what it could potentially bring to your life. And then someone just comes along next to you, charges ridiculous price, but also they often seem to have a great social media following. So it's incredibly triggering and people are literally racking their brains. Like how can they charge that when we, all of us medical people are buying from proper pharmacies and paying, you know, obviously normal prices. So what, what's going on? So um, there are multiple ways that you can reduce your prices and some of them are absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with them. And I, I don't want to be someone who says there's only one business model. Um, you know, there's room for Aldi and there's room for Sainsbury's and you can take that model of I'm going to have low margins and high volumes. Um, the problem is when you start to cut corners in order to achieve that. And that's where I really have an issue with it. And that unfortunately is absolutely happening. And there's loads of evidence of it. It gets shared on these Facebook groups. Um, you can find it if you just search for it. Um, so it's worth remembering that there are those two components to it. Some people are just doing, uh, legitimately doing a different business model. I'm trying to reduce the cost so that I get more clients that way. Unfortunately, there's a very fine line because one of the things that's worth knowing around business strategy in general is there's only one room, there's only one person who can be the cheapest in town. Anyone else is therefore at a disadvantage because you can't, you're, you're competing for the niche of cheapest. Uh, and that can work if you can maintain that. But it's a, it's a difficult game where the, the need to cut corners will pop into your mind occasionally because we're, we're all human. And if someone else comes out who's a pound cheaper and you've got to cut costs even more, some people, some of the time, not all people, will think of a way of doing it a bit cheaper that's not actually in the patient's best interest. And those are the ideas we've got to be very careful of and look out for. So there are lots of those. Um, one of them would be, I mean, we did. We had a researcher look for buying products online and we found some absolutely shocking numbers. So you can actually buy a dermal filler product for $8 for two mils. And you can actually pay extra and have it branded if you want to. So you can create your own brand. I'm not going to share the link where that's, where that's findable. But this really blew me away because we pay, you know, about £100 per mil to buy it. More than that, 120 So if if you're trying to compete with someone who's buying it from the internet, from an un, an unvalidated source, because that's the big difference. This is where it gets tricky, is that these these products are made 
uh, in an unregulated fashion. They're just made in a factory somewhere, probably, you know, somewhere abroad where there's no testing. There's no um, validation. There's no all the, any claims about how long it lasts or whether it's got impurities in it. None of that's available. It so. could be anything. It yeah, really, absolutely. It, like I'm literally oh, feeling scared thinking about it. And these, the people who are making them are also trying to be the cheapest in town. So they've also got the same drive to cut, co- to cut costs. They don't have a brand to think about. Mm. It's not like they're trying to protect their reputation. They're that's just selling point. it as cheap yeah. as possible online making it as cheap as possible trying to cut corners at every point so you just have absolutely no idea what's in it and the chances are the cheapest thing possible is in it because that's the niche they're going for so this is the this is why i hate the 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 concept of trying to be the cheapest in town because it drives you down a route where the only way to win is to continuously become cheaper and cheaper which is tricky for most people to stay disciplined and not do something that's not in in the interests of your patient now we're supposed to be healthcare professionals i think doing this and you should always put your needs of your patient ahead of cutting costs even if that means you don't treat as many people because you you're you're slightly more expensive so that's the key thing to remember is if you go for the cheapest product in the cheap for the cheapest place in town you're going to you there's a small chance that you're also going to be getting something you're not planning for. Other ways, unfortunately, I've heard of clinicians reducing costs is um, some are diluting it with saline. So just mixing the product with even a third of, of saline will basically reduce your, uh, reduce your cost by a third. So you can't tell on the day. It looks pretty much the same. They just might lose volume a little bit quicker and you could be getting away with it. So it's very hard to tell, um, but I've definitely, I'm aware of many practitioners who kind of drop that in about a little thing that they do, which is which is unfortunate. Can I ask about that? So what is going on with that? Like, can you just put saline in and it's not going to have any cross-infection issues? Um, you could do that without cross-infection issues. It's possible. Depends how, how you're doing it. It's obviously you are messing with the product. It's more, I don't think it's necessarily a risk for blood-borne diseases. It's just a, a way of spreading the product a bit more thinly. It may have some unintended consequences, like the product will probably diffuse slightly. It's worth knowing that hyaluronic acid, the actual syringe is mainly saline anyway. So you have you, best, you basically have a sugar that holds moisture. That's kind of what hyaluronic acid is. So giving it a bit more moisture to hold isn't that tricky. It won't look different. It probably won't even feel that different to inject. And on the day and maybe the first few weeks afterwards will be quite similar, but it isn't as the manufacturers intended it. So you, you may not get quite what you're paying for. That's from my perspective as, you know, a non-clinical person. That's why I think that's out of order because you are giving this person who's paying their money, no matter how much you're charging, even you're just charging a pound or it's free, it's still a relation, there's a relationship, there's a, there's a contract going on there, an emotional one and a clinical one, where you are basically saying, this is what you're getting, and then they're not getting it. I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, are those people, I wonder, are they saying, by the way, I've looked into it and it's okay, I'm diluting your product? Uh, actually, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you're taking that approach... Yeah, but are they? I, well, some will... Most probably aren't because the real benefit is the cost saving. The real benefit is not to the patient in most cases. Now, there is an argument. I have heard it said around, you know, certain areas of the face that maybe you'll get less edema if you've mixed it up with saline. There's no science behind it. So there are reasons and I have no objection to this at all. If you think you've learned something uh, that fundamentally is true about the product that you believe is true and you may not have a big study but you think that's how it works better and you're open with your patients and you do something to the product like lots of people will mix lidocaine with it in the old days especially there's nothing wrong with doing that if you're open to it there's nothing Mm. unethical you may not have science backing you but it's not a moral 
failing. Whereas the, the unfortunately, the very fine line between that and thinking, hang on, I'm saving a third of my product here. My product cost, the main cost of your business is 30% less than my competition. That's that you know that's going to be tempting for a lot of people to do that. And interestingly, we haven't spoken about this, but there was a um, colleague put a link onto the Closed Skin Viva training group yesterday about a case, a GMC case that hadn't gone in the way of the doctor because he wasn't he was using Azalor or another Botox alternative and wasn't open about that and was saying to the patient, which I'm sure a lot of people will do that not meaning to be horrible or unethical or anything they're just kind of talking about it as botox because that's what we all talk about it as and yeah so so that's very interesting so so the the case there is you have you've told me i'm getting one drug yeah. but you've given me a different one even and though it's fine that's also a fine drug but yeah but but it's not about whether it's a fine drug or not it's the technicality of the fact that it's like prescribing someone an antidepressant and giving them an antibiotic from a legal perspective yes that may not be how we all think about it but that's worth knowing that's a really good tip for you guys if you are using different products refer to them by their names otherwise when you, if you end up in a court case and they say you said you treated me with Botox and it turns out to be Azalor or Bocature, that could be a, a major flaw in your in your argument. So, exactly, and there's no there's no shame in doing that. Just just do yeah, it. Yeah, just tell them. Patients don't mind if you yeah. if you're open about it. You give them the reasons why you've chosen that product, and they won't mind at all. It's about not lying about which product you're using. So, is there anything else you want to say about the dilution thing? Um, not much on dilution. The most dangerous of all the ways I've seen people saving costs is by sharing syringes. And this comes up on, I mean, people are really brazen. This does come from the non-regulated side of the market where they will share literally on a Facebook post. Um, I've got someone coming in for a treatment. Does anyone want to share the other half of a mill? Um, and then you will sometimes even see videos on Instagram of it being done. So you can actually see you know, a couple of people in the room, um, one of these minor celebrities who does injecting was doing it without gloves on. So you've now got no gloves on, same person, two different people having having a procedure with the same product. Now, I do think that most people who've got any kind of education will know they're not, they're not going to use the same needle, but they're not realizing that the, there's a really similar risk with bloodborne diseases such as HIV, hepatitis B, and possibly HIV. That if your if your work surfaces are contaminated because you and your syringe is a work surface, so you're touching that, patients bleed. Now, if you're not wearing gloves, it's even worse because you're probably not washing your hands in between as well. So you're injecting one person, getting a bit of blood. You can probably barely see it. It might be a tiny streak on the needle. And two minutes later, you're injecting the next person. Fair enough, you change the needle, but you're touching the same surface. And these these viruses last a long time. Hepatitis C will live on a surface for three weeks. Before, it, before it's no longer able to contaminate someone. Hepatitis B is about a week. HIV within a dried area of blood can last five, five to seven days. Now, you've got to have a fair amount of blood to do that, but it can certainly last a minute in a drop of blood. So all of these are potentially transferable for people who are not keeping their, basically having a proper clinical workspace where you're, where you're being very clean with each patient, having their own syringe, their own um, uh, environment, basically. So this, this is a big risk. There has been one case of HIV, HIV being spread that's, that's known about, because there'll be more that aren't known about, that was around a dermarola derma, treatment, I think. So quite a bloody procedure, but using the same dermarola on different people. Obviously, it's, it's risky, but I, I think it's a matter of time with bad clinical practice before that happens to a member of the public. And I feel like when I'm imagining someone who's unregulated, so for example, a beauty therapist or, or whoever is doing this treatment, they might think, oh, well, I've changed the needle. What's the problem? You know, stop going on about it, you know, Dr. Tim. But actually, I think the reason that they can 
get away with that kind of attitude is because they've got nothing to lose. You know, there's no, if that patient gets HIV, like what is the, there's no redress against this person. There's the, whereas if you do something bad, there's something, you've got something to lose, which is your GMC pin. And I, I really, this is why it's so wrong. This is at the heart of the whole unregulated people versus regulated people in our industry is that there's, there's there's nowhere to go they've got nothing to lose really i mean maybe reputation but you can overcome that as we've seen yeah i i don't want to state it that i'm sure people care about people as a general rule the the problem is we know from talking to the people that we train healthcare professionals have anxiety about losing their pin they're constantly thinking about it and it's actually woven into the culture it becomes I was thinking about how working in a hospital, you kind of get indoctrinated into a way of thinking about patient safety and about your how you fit into that world. And when you first start, you don't quite get it. And then you you, you get so many so many conversations with other clinicians who are like, oh, you know, you've got to be able to defend that action in court. And what are you going to say if someone asks you this? This whole, can you defend your practice is something that's woven into into anyone who's an independent practitioner, which just isn't something that's needed in if you're part of a non-regulated world. So... Even good people, basically, I think are quite likely to have bad practice because they're not habitualized in this way to minimize risk constantly and to fear the impact on their own personal lives if it, if it goes wrong. So I absolutely agree with you. And it's, it, there is a sense of nothing to lose. But I don't think that means these people are necessarily cavalier. It's just that they, do, they, just, don't, they just don't have the same, need, the same need to systematically go through those processes of minimizing risk because it's not part of the culture of how they think. Um, and you can see that because it's on Instagram. You can literally watch people doing horrendous things that are that scare the crap out of me, basically, when I see it being done. The injection techniques, the lack of safety, the lack of gloves, the lack of, um, you know, basic cleanliness but it's not to say that they actually don't care about their patients they're just oblivious like it's it's basically that dunning-kruger effect which i spoke about recently which is they don't know what they don't know they feel like good people just trying to make a difference but they just don't do not know what they're missing out um, and that's where the risk to patient comes so people might be watching this here thinking well it's all very well you know, you saying that we shouldn't be the cheapest in town, but I live in a deprived area. My clients are always challenging me on my prices and it's tricky with certain people to get a lift if they're not having a few syringes. So, you know, it's right for you, Dr. Tim, with your big shiny clinic. What about me? How can people watching this here market themselves to not be the cheapest in town? Well, the biggest piece of advice I can give you is don't commoditize yourself by by selling syringes, even packages of this as well. Because as soon as you say, I'm selling a, a mill of filler, what's the difference between you and the person down the road selling a mill of filler? There is no difference. To the un uneducated, which is everyone who's not in this industry, the difference between you know a, a filler that might be called, who knows, like Viva Filler, versus you know a, an H, uh, an FDA approved product it means there's no difference you can stick any brand you like it might be a brand that you made up and you bought on the Chinese website and had branded up yourself there's no way to tell so you've got to sell more than the thing you're injecting you've got to sell yourself you've got to make yourself the unique selling point so that and the only way you can do that is by delivering lots of value to the people that you treat like really caring about them making the best difference you can educating them along the way um, as soon as you start to make yourself the holder of a syringe of filler versus the human being behind it, yeah. um, you are you're gonna you're on a on a way to race to the bottom. You're gonna have to compete on price. You're gonna have to talk about mills. You're gonna have to look for cheaper products to compete because there's no difference between you. It's like the the word commodity comes from grain, buying grain, buying metals, like 
precious metals or whatever. It's the thing has the value, not the person who dug it up. And we don't want to be competing in that area because the honest truth is the real value is in the practitioner. They're the person who looks after them. They're, you are the person who will look after them if they have a complication. You're the person who gives them the advice. You're the person who should be honing the risks that they take to make sure that they get the result that actually makes them happy. Um, that is That takes a unique individual. It doesn't take a, a syringe full of hyaluronic acid. So don't market yourself as the holder of a syringe of filler. You're much better than that. It's so true. And um a colleague last night on a group, Richard, he was saying, he gave the example of a restaurant. So if you go to a Michelin star restaurant, you know, of course, you know that if you went into the kitchen, the carrots would be pretty much the same carrots that you can buy anywhere. I mean, they might be like organic or something, but it's not much that much difference. What you're buying in that Michelin star restaurant is the Michelin star chef and the experience and the amazing, caring, but not too intrusive waiters and you know the, the, the booking service is great and everything and and one thing I, I'm really really keen to get across is that even if you're watching this thinking I'm not a Michelin star restaurant you know I don't do all the areas of the face yet and I'm, I'm not even particularly you know sure that I'm, I'm I'm as experienced as I need to be actually think about all the other value adds you present for example are you really caring are you talking to your patients you know who've just had a divorce and giving them that gorgeous love and being funny on your social media or you know all these kinds of things you know are you informative do you give great videos on your social media that help people through their journey those things are not commodities most people aren't doing them step up give value and then let people know in your marketing that you are doing this let people know about your values let people know that you don't over treat that you won't just go for the quickest buck and honestly like that stuff means so so much and i think that's the way to decommoditize yourself and actually to not have to give the cheapest prices in town yeah, you have to give more of yourself, um, which is what I think the reason people become commodities is that they don't actually necessarily value, they haven't realized where they fit into all this. And it took me a while to do this at the beginning as well, because I remember th- um, getting feedback from people and then realizing what I was doing differently. Because before then, I thought everyone was doing the same thing. And you might have that yourself where you think there is no difference between me and the practitioner down the road. It's only when your clients come back and say, you know what? Um, I went somewhere else and they didn't give you give me half the information. They didn't even do a proper consultation like you do. And you're thinking, I thought everyone was doing what I'm doing. And they're not. So you need to get that message out in your in your marketing so that people can make a, a rational choice. And some of this comes from people not believing that other that that the consumer actually will make a rational choice. You've got to have faith in the consumer that if they understand the value of what you're offering, they'll make a logical choice, which might be that it costs a bit more, but they're getting something important to them. So I don't know why it happens in this industry more than more than many others, but most of us will have a 700 pound phone in our pocket that is the best phone we could find because that's really important to us. Not everyone. Um, but if everyone had the mindset that it was only the cheapest phone that would survive, we'd all be still carrying around Nokias uh, that did nothing. So realizing that, that if you provide something of value, people will pay 10 times as much if you can provide 10 times the value, should lift your eyes to the horizon. And then you can start to innovate around what really matters to your patients instead of innovating around cutting corners, which is what happens when you go for the other end of the market. You've got, but you've got to get still and think, what is my value? And the best way to do that is to ask your customers, say, oh, why did you come to me? I'm just curious. You don't have to be weird about it. Just say, oh, you know, I'm, you know, I've been following a marketing person online and they said it was a good idea to ask, you know, why did you come to me? And then from there, you can actually get 
get clear on your value. Start talking about that in your marketing and you no longer are a commodity. You're no longer that bag of grain or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So, so, so It's a really good question. Why, why did you come to me? People will give you real insight into how you were perceived in the outside world and really great question. I definitely recommend that. You mustn't think that people are there by accident. Virtually no one is there just because they just found the first person on Instagram. Something you've done has caused them to come or something that they perceive that you are. And that gives you really good feedback about how to build the next part of your business. And it may not always be good. It can just be, well, you're the closest. That's fine. That's still a niche you can dominate. No one else can be closer to that person. But look for the qualitative um, examples. So you seem really caring. I saw you wrote, wrote something that made me think... I uh, understand fillers better, so you're informing them. Whatever it is that you're doing, try and look for the, the ones that are around you adding value and then do more of that because it's hard. It's easy for us to say, but when you experience a client who's booked in saying, I read a blog that you wrote on like halal Botox or, or something that we, d- we did, then you're like, oh, wow, that actually helps someone make a decision. I'm going to do more of that. It'll drive you to do more. So, Tim, coronavirus, how can we as practitioners deal with all of the noise that's out there about coronavirus, you know, our customers might cancel their appointment. You know, we want to make sure that we're doing everything right, kind of safety-wise and infection-wise and all the rest of it. What what would be your the skinny on how to approach this well? Well, first thing is uh, people have been asking me my opinion on coronavirus a lot. In clinic yesterday, it was every conversation that came up. And so I think you need to be prepared as a clinician if you want to build trust with your patients you need to know a bit about this virus it's it's a huge topic so what are you going to tell them how and then second layer more importantly is the public health perspective what are you actually doing in your clinic to prevent the spread of the virus um, there are a couple of things i think people have got wrong on social media um, there is this these memes going around of it's just it's a load of um, noise generated by the media and it's not really a threat um, there's a lot of stuff like that which is downplaying the potential threat and I understand it because one of the things that comes up in these memes is the numbers have appeared small for so long so if there are 40 people infected um, in China on one day it's why are we worrying about 40 people in China we're a long way away and there's so few of them what I think people are missing is this the the exponential threat so if you picture someone with flu as being a bit like a domino with seasonal flu, the R number is close to one. So if one person gets the flu, they tend to pass it on to one other. From a domino perspective, one domino falls over, knocks over the next domino. Each fall of a domino is a transition, a transmission cycle. And so you could say after 15 transmission cycles, 15 people will have flu. The difference with the coronavirus is that one domino effectively knocks over three other dominoes if the, trans, if the R number is three. It's usually about 2.5 to three that I've seen mentioned in the studies. That means there's a completely different result when you get to the end of 15 cycles. In fact, at the end of 15 transmission cycles with the coronavirus, it's about four to five million people who have the virus. And that puts us in a whole different world of risk. I don't think people are very good at anticipating exponential changes. It's a little bit like mobile phones when they were first adopted. We had one girl in our school that had one and everyone thought she was a bit weird. And then literally a year later, you had to have a mobile phone. And no one saw that coming. I mean, even the companies at the time didn't predict it. They were saying, oh, an adoption of a few percent a year. That's because it's an exponential change. These changes that happen in that way, our brains are not geared up for. And in fact, if you look at an exponential graph, in small sections, it looks like a straight line. And this is what it looks like. If you look at the number of cases in the UK, it was 40, uh, then it was 80. That doesn't seem like a big difference. But that, those mathematics played out over a few weeks 
can turn into millions. So if you, what, what I realized about this exponential component, the fact that it's growing so fast is that if you want to respond properly to the coronavirus, you actually have to overreact to react properly because it's, it's changing so fast that our activity now to, to limit spread will seem like, why are we doing it? There's only three cases in Manchester. In fact, there's more than three now, I think already. Um, but it's by the time it gets to the point, it's an actual threat, it's too late. Like you, you haven't taken the steps. You've probably already passed it on. Someone in your building has passed it on. So I think we should start acting like it's already everywhere in order to prevent it getting everywhere. Um, some people think it's going to be too hard to do that because we don't live in a dictatorship where we can weld people into their buildings like they're doing in China. But that is what controls the R number. So if you want to decrease the number of spread, you need to limit the number of exposures to other people. Um, and you can do that when you can barricade up roads and close people into their buildings. But we're, we're never going to do that in the UK. We're going to probably stop certain events and maybe limit schools might be closed, for example. That'll make a significant difference. The goal is to get that number to less than one, because as soon as it's less than one, it dies out. Uh, that's very hard to do, but um, it's possible with good practice. So Simple things in your clinic are worth doing. One of the things is it survives on surfaces for a fair amount of time, not as long as some, I've heard some people say, you know, up to seven days. I think it's probably less than that. Most, most people are saying a bit less, but it does survive on particularly shiny surfaces. So less well on clothing for some reason, but uh, you should probably clean your door, your door handles. Anything that's touched as people come and leave the clinic should be cleaned regularly. Um, I know we have, Ellie does that in our clinic. She's always cleaning each room. Um, so that might really help. Um, the other thing would be alcohol hand gels. Now you can't use, a lot of us use chlorhexidine. Chlorhexidine doesn't actually work. So Sophie Riddell, I hope I'm saying your name right, Sophie. So Sophie, who's a clinical pharmacist who does aesthetics, shared on her page um, that the alcohol, that you need to use alcohol in order to kill the virus. So if you use chlorhexidine, it's actually not strong enough. So those the, the virus is wrapped in a little plasmid layer, which protects it from the environment to a degree. So you need to use alcohol with over 70% concentration. So you can't use vodka. It's got to be 70%. Um, and that's one other thing you can do is clean your surfaces. If someone you think someone might have been slightly ill, um, given maybe they've come from a country and they've already arrived in your clinic that's at risk, then you might want to do that. Spruce everything up and clean it just in case. You could also send a message out to your clients to, to prevent those who may have recently been in these high-risk areas, which perhaps we can provide a link for. It's on the Department of Health website, uh, gov.uk. You can Google um, the advice about which countries are high-risk. You may want to advise patients who've recently been there not to attend your clinic. Um, you won't lose out because very few of them will, but everyone else will know that you're taking precautions. So the alcohol... Is that when you get the normal alcohol gel, is that enough? Yeah, the normal alcohol gel is enough to kill the virus if it's on your hands. Um, there is droplet to drop, droplet spread. So you might, if you're close to someone, it might spread it. They don't think it spreads that easily, not as easily as flu, but it's, the, it's, it's still possible if you're close to someone. If you keep a two meter gap, that's meant to be enough. We, none of us are doing that in aesthetics. You're closer than that. Um, but alcohol wipes will clean your hands and surfaces well, effectively. What do you think about when we have boundaries in our clinic to protect against do not, did not attend, you know, DNAs and people kind of potentially taking the mickey a little bit. What do you think about if they quote coronavirus and they are within your, let's say you've got a 24 hours window where you say after, if you cancel within this 24 hour window before your appointment, then you're going to lose the, you know, you're going to lose your money you deposit or your, your um, booking fee. What do you think about if they suddenly quote coronavirus? Well, I've got the coronavirus or well, I'm worried about the coronavirus. Get it. I'm worried about getting the coronavirus in your clinic. Would you forego that money? 
That's really um, tough. I know the holiday companies are not giving way. So if you've booked a, a cruise, they're still saying you need to come on the cruise. As long as we're operating the cruise, you need to come on it or you lose your money. So uh, there's something in that. Having said that, what you don't want is someone with the coronavirus turning up to your clinic. And that's not unlikely that we could get to that point. It is it is spreading fairly quickly. So um, I would probably say you've got me there. <laughs> um, maybe hold on for their deposit, reschedule the next appointment. Yeah. But it's... Um, I, I wouldn't want to be putting any incentive for someone who's actually sick to come to the clinic. Would you be wearing a mask in your clinic? So one of the reasons you might do that is because you're worried about um, asymptomatic spread. So the, from what I've read, the theory is very few cases are spread by people who aren't symptomatic. But there's at least a couple of anecdotal stories where it could be. So I'd be, I'd possibly be doing that if someone... There, there should be some reason why you're worried, which shouldn't just be that they're Chinese. You know, that, that's where it gets really sensitive. You don't, want, you don't want to make someone feel like you're basically being racist. Um, if they've recently come from a high-risk part of China, that's different. But you probably would say, I'd rather not see you at all. I think the real defense is that you isolate the risks before they come to you in your clinic and you just advise them to come back within two weeks later. Um, so anyone who's had it, who's come from a high-risk area or has a contact who's been in a high-risk area or someone who's been who's had actually had the, the illness, who's been near them, you should not see those people in your clinic. Once they're in front of you wearing a mask, it might help. It's, it's only going to be a small difference. Apparently, if the masks get wet, it, it's worse. We're, interestingly so the virus obviously dissolves into the whatever is on the, the mask and then you're more likely to get it um, and you need um, really good quality masks that have a really tight seal which most people don't have it's probably better at keeping the virus in if you've already got the virus than it is about keep, keeping the virus out so they're not that amazing you could wear them though there's not it's not unreasonable to wear them in a clinical environment anyway so I hope you found that useful and there's something for you to go home and think about, maybe something you can improve, and maybe I've given you some insight on how things really work. It would be really great to hear your comments below. So leave us your thoughts, um, share this if you think it's helpful, and we will see you on the next episode. Take care.